Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Dr. Ballou, welcome to the New Books Network. Tell us a little bit about where you went to school and what led you to this project. Sure. Um, I did my training in the American Studies program at Yale, um, and I actually set out to write something on truth and reconciliation. Um, I've been interested in truth commissions and memorialization and museums and things like this, focusing on questions of how a nation and how people individually grapple with violent experience and racial inequality in the past. So that took me to the Greensboro, North Carolina Truth and Reconciliation Commission, which was held in 2005. Um, And unlike some of the more kind of well-known truth commissions, like the one in South Africa, um, the one in Greensboro was a totally non-governmental operation. It was founded and fueled by activists and local politicians, but it had no official buy-in from the city no subpoena power, no punitive capacity, nothing like that. And um, it's a commission that had to do with a shooting of uh, leftist anti-Klan demonstrators in 1979 by a group of united Klansmen and neo-Nazis who had come there expressly to shoot them um, and to do other kinds of violence to them. Um, And it's an event that really stuck out as being not really in the right time or place or context for a lot of reasons. It happened in 79, so it's too late for the civil rights movement. Um, The victims were four white men and one African-American woman, which isn't what you expect to see from Klan violence. Um, And most interesting to me is that when people came before this commission who were on the side of the perpetrators, they said things like, well, we killed communists in Vietnam. Why wouldn't we kill them in the United States? That idea struck me as incredibly important because it reflects a slippage in time, um, a slippage in place, and also a collapse of different kinds of enemies under this one banner of communism. Um, And the more I got into the paper archive of this movement, I mean, the movement is what emerged from from looking at at where this idea led, that led me to the idea of a social movement, Um, the more I saw that this was really a pervasive element in how people understood white power activism in, in the period that I came to study. So then, then you worked backwards from the green, which is, it makes up for a chapter of this book. And then you sort of started with the Vietnam war. Yeah. Yeah. So, so Greensboro led me to Lewis Beam, who was an influential writer and leader within this movement and had written a, he wrote a, a compendium of essays um, titled Essays of a Klansman that was published in 1983 and then republished in 1989. Um, and it's where a lot of these ideas about bringing the war home were really fleshed out and um, also were highly circulated. Um, so Greensboro led me to Beam and then Beam led me back to Lewis Beam's own experience in Vietnam, which was formative not only for him, but for how a lot of other people in the movement thought about what they were doing. Now, I want to dive into that before I, I have one question, which is the research process for a book like this, because as, as you point out, um, this isn't something that has a necessarily a very conventional archival footprint. You know, this is a movement that 
sometimes is operating in the shadows and sometimes is not. And what does it look like to work on something like this? So I think the kind of methodology that you need for a movement of this kind has to be pretty flexible. Um, it, it stretched across several different kinds of archival sources. So I used previously classified documents that I got through freedom of information requests, um, a lot of newspaper research, um, and then the archives compiled by watchdog groups like Southern Poverty Law Center. And then also there's there are now a few major ephemera collections of materials left behind by this movement. Um, and significantly, one of those collections was created by someone who sent out a questionnaire to a whole bunch of groups on the left and on the right, um, saying basically, can you fill this out and tell us what you think about issues and also just send me whatever literature you have lying around? Um, and they did. And so at University of Kansas, there's this enormous collection called the Wilcox Collection that has all of that stuff. Meanwhile, at Brown University, um, two people were going out to group meetings and kind of infiltrating and then collecting literature that was passed out at those meetings. And significantly, um, Wilcox at University of Kansas and Hall Hoag at Brown have a lot of the same materials, um, which, you know, for historians is significant in that the way the movement was presenting itself was very consistent with the way that it was being encountered when it didn't know it was presenting itself. Um, and then rounding that out was the third collection of movement ephemera compiled by a journalist working on an account of one event that's in the book. Um, let's see. Beyond that, there was some transnational research in Mexico and Nicaragua when I was looking at mercenary soldiers who were affiliated with, um, with some of these ideologies. But as I say, the, the, the fact of the social movement really was um, something of a, an archival surprise, and it really emerged just from my own note-taking system when I started to notice how many of these groups had very strong interconnections. So let's dive into the meat of it then. Yeah, the Vietnam War is really central to the story you're trying to tell here, So, and, it, and in many ways it begins with Lewis Beam. So your first chapter, the Vietnam War story, what's going on? Um, so the first chapter picks up with this idea of the Vietnam War, and I think it should be, um, it's worth mentioning and restating that what I'm looking at in this book is primarily the way that people understood the Vietnam War, and that's distinct from the other historical question of what happened in the Vietnam War. Um, a lot of what this is, is about the re-narrativization and the way that the Vietnam War worked as a story and as a frame of social action that brought together not only people who had shared combat experiences, but also a whole bunch of other people who were able to take on bits and pieces of this story in other ways. So that ranges from people like Beam, who served two tours as a gunner on a Huey helicopter, um, wrote extensively about his combat record and whose combat record can be verified through other archival sources, all the way over to people who straight up lied about having served when I can show that they were in prison during the time that they said that they were serving, um, to people who were um, who said that they were civilians but liked to wear uniforms or liked to take on bits and pieces of this identity. So with, with Beam... What is it about his experience in Vietnam that leads him into, into this new kind of white power activism? So with Beam, and this is an instructive example, it's important to remember that he, the, the argument of my book is not that war itself creates racists. Um, 
Dean, for instance, was involved in segregationist politics before he went to Vietnam. But what happens in Vietnam is that things are, um, are, are ramped up and shaped by the experience of combat. So Beam has an enormously formative war experience by his own telling and talks about um, losing friends and fellow soldiers to violence. He talks about, you know, gore and impossible conditions of combat. And he talks about all kinds of other, other things that we would recognize as the way that, you know, America has come to understand the Vietnam War, right? Like this is the Vietnam War story that we know from every film about Vietnam. Um, now the more complicated question is how much of what Beam is saying about his own war experience is capital T true and how much of it is sort of his way of mobilizing this new narrativization of the war that's available to people in the early 1980s through pop culture and other means, right? So there's a difference between him saying that he's experiencing combat trauma and him, in fact, experiencing combat trauma. And that line is one that I can't, um, you know, I can't pin that down from an archival study. But certainly we see Beam using the language of PTSD and combat trauma to mobilize other people um, in a sense that the government has betrayed them and therefore they should wage war upon it. So there's that on the one hand, there's that narrative of betrayal. And it seems like after Vietnam that becomes normalized in a certain extent. I mean, I think we're seeing it again today in part. But there's also a sort of tactical shift that's starting to go on. And it seems as though Beam is an innovator in this regard. So what does he start doing beyond writing, beyond just sort of putting his experience out? Yeah, sure. So he he undertakes a whole bunch of strategies that um, that sort of share a genealogical tie to the war. Um, one of them is just an instrumental extension of war tactics and training to the United States. So Beam founds a series of paramilitary training camps. Um, he outfits Klansmen in uh, combat fatigues rather than white um, robes and hoods. Um, and he puts them through a boot camp that's modeled on the Vietnam War experience. Um, he also does things like, like formulate strategies that have to do with the structures of the Vietnam War um, that are designed to bring the violence of war into American domestic spaces and against civilians and um, politicians and other cultural elites. One of his first test case, sort of test cases, I almost want to call it something like um, a, a, an experiment of his, happens to do with uh, Vietnamese fishermen living in Texas on the Gulf Coast. What's going on there? So that's kind of the first um, major incident for Beam after he comes back from the Vietnam War. So what happens is Beam comes home to Texas um, as a decorated veteran in 1968 he goes through a whole bunch of um, sort of possible clan affiliations and then founds his own group that he then affiliates with a larger um, organization called Knights of the KKK. Um, and under that group, he, he uses the Texas Veterans Land Grant to purchase some acreage on which he founds this paramilitary training camp called Camp Puller. Um, and what they do at Camp Puller is operationalize um, local resentment. So this is actually a common clan strategy. And we can think about this um, historically as being um, a sort of opportunistic tactic that marks 
earlier iterations of clan activity. So if you think about the classic clan, um, the, the second era clan is the one that most people are familiar with, which is the clan in the 1920s. That's the one that peaks in 1924 with 4 million people um, and is very, very mainstream. So most people have an idea of the Klan as being anti-Black and possibly anti-Jewish. But if you look at the Klan in the 20s, it's also anti-Mexican when it's on the U.S.-Mexico uh, border. It's anti-immigrant when it's on the East Coast, where there are a lot of immigrants. It's anti-Catholic in Indiana, largely because Notre Dame is in Indiana. It's anti-labor in the Pacific Northwest, where they're having a lot of labor unrest. So the playbook is sort of to use local tension um, in order to sort of bring people into the clan and um, cohere them around a common mission. And that's what Beam does in Texas. Um, in that case, he finds a, a way to do this that's very, very um, compatible with the re-narrativization of the Vietnam War. Um, and what had happened um, in this community on the Texas coast is the resettlement of a pretty large number of Vietnamese refugees who would come to the United States after the Vietnam War and during the Vietnam War, um, and then self-resettled to the Texas coast in order to become shrimp and crab fishermen. There was a lot of tension then between that community and the local white fishermen who felt that they were being outfished, um, and Beam was able to mobilize those frustrations to bring the white fishermen into the paramilitary training camps and then use them to sort of wage this campaign of harassment against the refugees. And he did this, I should say, directly using the imagery and language of the Vietnam War. So doing things like burning a boat on which he somebody had painted the USS Viet Cong. Um, there was a lot of rhetoric around how the refugees were actually Viet Cong, um, even though this is sort of the opposite of the political leanings of most of these refugees. Um, and this whole thing only sort of came to a halt when um, the refugee fishermen and the Southern Poverty Law Center filed a civil suit to enjoin the Klan from harassment and to keep them from parading um, as paramilitary armies in Texas. And then you move on to Greensboro, which we've already touched on a little bit, but I, I'd like to hear more about that chapter. Sure. So Greensboro is important because, well, it has two sort of major ways that it's important to mainstream readers today. Um, one of them is that it's the first moment that this white power movement coheres. So the white power movement is a coalition of a whole bunch of different groups um, that have more ideological diversity and um, sort of it's, it's a bringing together of people on a very different scale than previous mobilizations of the KKK alone. So white power is not just the Klan. It also includes neo-Nazis, skinheads, radical tax resistors, um, proponents of a variety of white theologies and um, mythologies. Um, and all of those people come together in this unified white power movement. Greensboro is sort of the first official moment of, of that groundswell coming together as one force. So again, in Greensboro, what we see is Klansmen and neo-Nazis coming together and calling themselves the United Racist Front and then opening fire on an anti-Klan demonstration. Um, now, that brings me to the second way that this is important to the mainstream, which is that this is, as you might guess, the closest cognate we have in the historical archive for the events that have become very familiar to many of us um, in Charlottesville, Virginia in the last year. Um, 
this idea of a coordinated um, pan, you know, a coordinated movement that reaches across different groups and then comes into public confrontation. That's what happened in Greensboro. Um, And the very unsettling thing in Greensboro is that um, what it revealed more than anything else is the total, um, the total lack of readiness in institutions, particularly in courts, to effectively confront this as a real threat to society. Um, the Greensboro gunmen were acquitted. Um, well, first of all, they were the, the, the Greensboro shooting was a, a pretty long shooting. This is 88 seconds of film. Um, it captures, uh, the, there, were, there were news cameras on site. So it captured, they captured the shooting from three different camera angles. You can see people's faces. You can see exactly who fires what. And nevertheless, the gunmen in, these, in this shooting were acquitted in state and federal criminal trials. Um, there was a lot of concern about impartial jury selection. There was a lot of concern about whether a fair trial could be, um, could really happen. Um, and, and fundamentally there were some failures about how to explain white power as a coordinated movement to jurors and to the broader public. Um, a civil trial, uh, returned only a, a sort of incomplete kind of justice in that it found only four of the five deaths, um, excuse me, only one of the five deaths to be wrongful. So all of the people killed at that protest who were card-carrying communists, they were found, um, those deaths were not considered wrongful in the civil suit, but the one person who was not a communist, they said that death was wrongful. So it, it sort of did, um, I don't know, pardon the killing of communists in some fundamental ways. And there's a there's a really deeply unfunny Saturday Night Live sketch about this that um, sort of attempts to humorize that point. <laughs> um, but but yeah, but it's a, it's a you know it's a very concerning moment in in the history of American legal justice because it's it's a a major failure. And it's an interesting place to start with the truth and reconciliation process. One of the things that was striking to me. Um, watching or, or reading about that in particular was the extent to which by casting themselves in a certain light, they managed to gain what seemed to me to be a very disturbing degree of public sympathy. Yeah, you know, that it's actually kind of okay to shoot communists. They are dangerous, right? So, which I think has connections to the present as well, finding ways to connect to the public. But I want to get back to that in a little bit. Your next chapter is about mercenaries, and I, this actually might have been my favorite chapter in part because it, it dovetails with Ger- some of Gerald's horn, Horn's work. So how are, how are white power advocates getting involved in mercenary work in this period? So this is where the book expands a little bit, and I'm looking at not only people who are in the white power movement, but also a kind of broader paramilitary mercenary combat circuit that included um, – sort of everything from armchair warriors who read Soldier of Fortune magazine on up to people who actually traveled to Rhodesia, South Africa, um, and later Zimbabwe, and then to Central America as mercenary soldiers. And part of what I wanted to get at in that chapter, well, there's kind of two major things. One is the way that anti-democratic warfare um, sort of got rehearsed in that space such that it could be staged at home afterward. And the other is that there is a very, very blurry line between white power activists, non-white power activists, mercenaries, and the state 
in that time and place, particularly in Central America. So if you look at groups like civilian material assistance, um, which before that was called civilian military assistance, um, it was led by Tom Posey, who was a defendant in the Iran-Contra hearings eventually. Um, Tom Posey is a really good example of somebody who considered joining the Klan, largely because he hated communists, um, according to him, I'm quoting now, um, decided not to join the Klan, but to become a mercenary soldier to help overthrow the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, and then ended up doing that not just for himself, but also for the CIA. So there was a direct slide from each of these positions into the other. And I think that Central America is really important to understanding how those stories come together. And to what extent are they sort of operating with the support, the sanction, or at least the acceptance of the U.S. government? So it ranges a great deal. So, um, for instance, in 1981, one foiled mercenary plot was called Operation Red Dog. And the idea was for Klansmen to attempt to take over the island of Dominica, which is in the Caribbean, um, the windward chain. Um, and the idea was that they were going to overthrow the weak government, thus keeping out the Soviets and also creating a puppet government to funnel money back to the Klan in the United States. Um, so that one was a total non-starter. They were all caught and arrested on their way out of New Orleans. Like they didn't even get out of the harbor. Um, but they did that in part because one of the leaders said he was working for the CIA. Um, and in many other cases, you know, people took on these sorts of expeditions with people who were in fact working for the CIA, like Tom Posey. And there are a lot of really alarming stories about people um, going through customs with bazookas in their luggage and not getting pulled aside, um, flying through, um, through around constraints by using cargo planes, flying with tons of military personnel. Um, Tom Posey somewhere was quoted as talking about like how many Americans were in Honduras just waiting to launch attempts in Nicaragua. So part of what's happening on the other end is that um, the checks and balances in the United States between Reagan and sort of the, the people who were trying to pass Bolin amendments and other pieces of legislation to stop intervention in Central America, those tensions um, were subject to, well, they produced an enormous amount of sort of confusing circumstances on the ground for people who would like to be combatants in Central America. What's interesting in this period, and this is the subject of the next chapter, is that there these advocates, activists, white power proponents, they start to shift away from the U.S. government, from really any kind of relationship with it. I mean, the chapter is called The Revolutionary Turn. So how are they recasting themselves in relation to the federal government? Sure. And this is an important question for historians, because this is one of those shifts that's both marked in 1983 and has moments of foreboding before that. So people like Beam had been expressing anti-statism um, for years, right? But there's this moment in 1983 when the movement sort of makes this very dramatic revolutionary turn. They issue declarations of war. They begin cell-style warfare. They begin to communicate using encrypted computer message boards um, on this network called LibertyNet. They begin um, the strategy of leaderless resistance, which is a cell structure designed to sort of stymie prosecution. And all of those turns are supposed to be for a war against the state. They're declaring war on the federal government. 
So what they post on LibertyNet often includes lists of targets for assassinations and other things like that. And leaderless resistance is expressly about creating a, a model through which they can wage war. Um, now, this is really instructive for us because it's in 1983, which again seems out of joint with our understanding of the early 1980s, right? This is the second term of Reagan. This is a moment when arguably people who would be drawn to white power have a lot to gain from electoral politics, but they don't see it this way. Um, and if anything, what they, what they reflect is sort of this growing rift between Reagan's campaign promises and what he's actually accomplishing in office. Um, and in this way, white power is really similar to people like um, those in the evangelical movement, which is also gathering a lot of steam in this time period um, around social issues. Um, the idea is that electoral politics is too moderate and can't be reclaimed, and therefore the war in the state must proceed. That's so interesting to think about. Um... I look at it and can't help but feel it's also sort of, yeah, it's that rhetoric of anti-statism, the chickens coming home to roost, but um, you can put that a few different ways. There's also, the movement seems to be becoming even more militarized in this period. What's fueling that? So um, the, the strategy of leaderless resistance is really important because it makes, it creates a, um, an imperative for everyone in the movement to become a soldier. Um, everyone in the cell is supposed to be doing something for the war against the state. Um, the other thing that happens is that um, there is a rising sense of apocalyptic belief, not just in this movement, but throughout American society in the 1980s, that sort of um, fuels this paramilitary culture, um, both towards survivalism and towards combat. Um, so a lot of people in the white power movement in the 1980s are followers of Christian identity, and that is a political ideology that posits that before the return of Jesus, white people will have to survive a period of tribulation. So evangelicals get to be raptured uh, away, right? But white power activists and Christian identity followers don't believe in rapture. They believe that they will have to either survive the end times or fight to clear the earth of enemies in the end times. So there's a rising sense of being under siege, of a rising specter of racial annihilation and a sense of fear that really pushes this to a culmination in the 80s. And how are they interacting with the federal government in terms of law enforcement? Because it, you point out that at various points, federal agencies are sort of aware of what's going on. How's the government responding? So the government response to white power is varied and sort of confusing. Um, it ranges from career agents who are really trying to figure out how to stop this. Um, and some of those agents become targets for assassination plots that don't happen and, and face a lot of danger in their jobs. Um, all the way up to people who seem to have provoked violence either in attempts to catch people or out of sympathy. So there's really a large range of reactions. I think the takeaway though for historians is that um, there was not ever a moment when the government really 
had a coherent sense of this as a social movement that was a pan-regional swell that connected people across all kinds of belief systems and all kinds of different backgrounds, and that posed a real coherent ideological challenge that was recruiting people. Um, In absence of that understanding, most institutional responses were ineffective because they tended to focus on, for instance, one person rather than a network of people or, um, you know, isolated incidents rather than coherent patterns. Um, I think, uh, well, we'll get to the Oklahoma City bombing, which is the most clear example of that problem. Um, but it that, that problem sort of appeared in military responses to movement violence, in police responses, in the way that federal agents did and didn't coordinate their information. Um, in Greensboro, for instance, there were there was an FBI confidential informant and a undercover agent for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, both of whom had foreknowledge that something was going to happen and neither of whom reported it properly. Mm. Now, on top of, and then this sort of harkens back to that apocalyptic thinking that you were mentioning, but there, there's also, there are certain, sort I don't know if to call them cultural or literary sort of tracks that emerge, one of which is the Turner Diaries. And the Turner Diaries comes up again and again for these people. What is the Turner Diaries? So the Turner Diaries is a utopian novel, or we would say probably a dystopian novel, but for people in this movement, a utopian novel that sort of sets out to answer the fundamental question that you probably have if you're thinking about a small fringe movement waging war on the United States in the 1980s and 1990s, which is how in the world did they think they were going to do this? Um, as the Turner Diaries itself puts it, it's sort of like a gnat planning to assassinate an elephant, right? It's a, it's the, the, the asymmetry of that job is notable. So what the Turner Diaries is, is a fictional work that purports to be the found diary of one soldier in this white power movement after a successful revolution. So basically it's recounting the way that the revolution unfolded fictionally. Um, and also laying out several options for how white power activists could carry out such a revolution should they want to try. Um, It includes a sort of, um, it's, I mean, a guerrilla war on the state that culminates in nuclear attacks on the state and on Israel, partitioning of a white homeland, the genocide of all people of color. Um, It goes on and on like this until they're left with a all white world. Um, so it's a terrifying and stark book, um, that became sort of a touchstone for the movement. And it's, as you say, it turns up in a lot of really important places. So, um, I, I have a chapter about the order, which is a white terrorist group that carried out assassinations and armored car robberies. They kept a stack of like 30 Turner diaries in their bunkhouse. Um, it turned up in bookstores on the mercenary circuit. So all the way in South Africa, you could buy the Turner Diaries. Um, it turned up in the hands of people, um, you know, from Washington State to North Carolina in this movement. And most famously, maybe it was sold and circulated by Timothy McVeigh before the Oklahoma City bombing. Now, how are these guys arming themselves? That sort of fits into your sixth chapter and then also leads into what the order is working on. Sure. So... One thing they're doing is obtaining stolen military weapons and materiel from army posts and other military installations. 
Um, they are also um, a- attempting and successfully engineering their own weapons. So, so different groups are making napalm, making landmines, figuring out how to convert semi-automatic weapons to automatic function, experimenting with C4 and other kinds of explosives, um, and basically just figuring out how to use sort of the all the, the militarized weaponry of the late 20th century for their own ends. And what is the order? We've already touched on what the order was, but what were they doing at this time? Sure. So the order is, um, well, it's probably, it's the first functional example of leaderless resistance, which is that idea of cell style terror that can be conducted without leaving behind uh, the prosecutable ties between kind of movement soldiers and movement leaders. Um, So the order was led by Bob Matthews. Uh, It included a whole bunch of people um, and grew as time went on. It started with sort of small scale robberies, like robbing, I think like $300 from a pornographic video store and got all the way up to multi-million armored car heists and counterfeiting and other things like that. Um, The order is also important because it, it distributed that stolen money to cells all around the country. Um, And a lot of people used that stolen money to buy computers to get onto these keyword access message boards on LibertyNet. It's important to think about. A lot of people date the, the sort of entry of white power ideology to the internet as 1995 after the Oklahoma City bombing. But this happened in 1984, which means... These activists had like, I don't know, two decades of experience with basically Facebook before the rest of us had ever heard of it. Yeah, I actually walked away from that thinking it was striking just how tech savvy these guys were. I mean, they were really figuring out how to communicate digitally 10 years ahead of the curve. Yeah, even more than that, I think. And it took the FBI several years, too, to crack the codes to these message boards. So they had a way to circulate, um, I mean, to circulate illegal communications like hate literature and assassination lists, but also a way to connect with one, one another. And, and um, they used these, uh, these message boards not only for kind of nefarious purposes, but also for placing personal ads, for finding spouses that shared their beliefs, for coordinating, um, you know, social relationships and events and things like that. So it really was sort of social networking activism. That's an interesting take on it. Um, you mentioned spouses, and I, you have a chapter specifically on the role of of white women and where they fit into this. Where do they fit in? You know, most scholarship about this has focused on paramilitary masculinity, and that's sort of where I was directed to. And, and the women really surprised me in the archive. But these groups, I mean, the reason women are important is that women are how you can see this as a social movement. The relationships between these groups were often negotiated through marriages of somebody's daughter to somebody else's friend, right? Or between the social relationships brokered by women. Women were important to recruiting. They did all kinds of informal labor, like um, disguising people and driving getaway cars. They did all kinds of social network bonding stuff, like, I don't know, cooking meals. The, The way you see this movement is through relationships like you know, people would travel from one state to another to get marriage counseling from somebody within the movement. They would pick each other up at the airport, care for each other's children. These ties were really, really deep. And it's another feature of leaderless resistance, right? When you think about what a movement needs to do for success, 
many social movements are looking for turning out the largest number of people that they can at an event, right? Leaderless resistance doesn't care about that. They don't want a cross burning with thousands of people. They want a small group of totally dedicated activists. So the more that people began to live their whole lives in the movement like this, like your marriage in the movement, your mentors in the movement, your children in the movement, that went hand in hand with this cell style organizing. And it's one way that we know that membership numbers are not what we should be looking at when we're trying to gauge the relative strength of this movement. So how do they, how, or how does somebody like Lewis Beam conceive of, of the role of, of a white woman? What, what is her job supposed to be? So white women, um, I should just say this is contested. There's not just one idea about what white women should be doing. And a lot of the ideas are coming not just from Beam, but from women in the movement themselves. Um, who talk about being dissatisfied with their role sometimes. Um, so significantly, because this is a movement organized as a paramilitary army and because it is a socially conservative movement, usually, um, women almost uniformly said they didn't want to be leaders. They don't want to be leaders. They're not looking to usurp the men. They want to be in their proper place, which they talk about as being in the home and with the children. Um, there's a lot of focus on women bearing children because of this sense of racial apocalypse and annihilation. Um, and there's a lot of publications that say things like women should fight in the struggle, but they should first have two to three children to you know, continue the race. Um, and indeed, women's reproductive capacity is a site of intense, intense focus by both men and women within the movement. Um, but there are also women who are really trying to sort of, I, I don't know, find their own agency within this situation. Um, and you find records of things like, so Bob Matthews, the leader of the order, has a, a moment where the FBI has been pursuing him and then he dies in a fiery, you know, a fiery explosion. Um, and this is an iconic moment for the white power movement. Like people travel to this site to pay homage to his martyrdom. And it's been depicted in, you know, everything from sort of like, elegies written by the movement to like made for TV mini dramas. Right. But that moment is almost always depicted as him by himself in a house waiting for the FBI. Um, and in fact, that house was full of women and toddlers and people cooking and people disguising him and people shredding documents and doing all kinds of work. Um, and one of the women who was in the house with him right before he died and people left before that fiery crash, but but immediately, just a couple of days before, um, had been involved in in something with this declaration of war that became a foundational document for the movement. And as she testified in court, she proofread that document for Matthews. And any historian of women and gender then wants to know like exactly what kind of work was involved in proofreading, right? There's very real possibilities that women were involved in a whole lot more than they took credit right. for. So then... This leads us right into Ruby Ridge. What's the significance of Ruby Ridge? So Ruby Ridge um, is the federal siege of the Weaver family, which the Weavers were a white power family located in a remote mountain cabin um, in Ruby Ridge, Idaho. Um, we know they were involved in the white power movement because they had traveled many times to Aryan nations, which was nearby. Um, and because Randy Weaver, the father, had run for office on a platform involving white power issues. Um, but 
the way the siege unfolded turned into this huge and tragic PR disaster for the federal government. Um, Basically, they were staking out the family for a very minor offense. I think it was for a sawed-off shotgun that was like a quarter of a barrel too short. Um, And was also, the the charges were also produced through entrapment. Um, So the weavers were holed up with supplies on the top of this mountain and federal snipers ended up um, in the course of events killing Vicki Weaver while she was standing in a doorway holding her um, infant daughter. Um, Vicki Weaver became a martyr for the movement and sort of was held up not just by people in the white power movement, but by a whole bunch of sympathetic other people um, as a example of the oversteps of the militant super state. So she was, a, it, it was a moment that um, kind of fueled the militia outgrowth of the white power movement um, and also let people like Lewis Beam reframe themselves as sort of newly activist in this militia. Frame. Also coming at a moment when communism has suddenly been eclipsed completely as a concern for these guys, right? Indeed. Um, well, I, and I wouldn't say completely. People still talk about communism into the 90s, but certainly the the end of the Cold War um, lessened the urgency of communism as an enemy. Um, and there's, you know, it's worth thinking about when we think about the 1990s that there's a, um, there's a real moment between, say, the fall of the Berlin Wall and 9-11, where we have a whole bunch of Americans who have been thinking and believing and fixating on this promised apocalypse, Right the agent of the apocalypse disappears, right? We're not anymore for a decade or so, at least worried about nuclear warfare, even though people have been really, really fixed on it before that. So the belief is there, but the agent is missing. And I think there's a moment of people in search of apocalypse um, or a belief in search of an enemy, if that makes sense. Uh, And one of the things that can slot into that is the sphere of the state from that, we get the rise of conspiracy theories about black helicopters and secret camps and state repression. I mean, not for nothing, the Ruby Ridge incident and Waco and the um, the omnibus pr- crime bill that limits handgun purchasing all happen in the same couple of years in the early 90s. Um, and these people see that as like a state of emergency. They even have a slogan to go with it given to them by a U.S. president. That's this phrase, New World Order, which they, yeah, seems to take the place of a lot of earlier fears or slot slot into them, as the case may be. Yeah, exactly. All of this seems to culminate with Oklahoma City. And in particular, I, th- I thought in this chapter very effectively, you're pushing against the grain of a lot of established uh, narrative about what happened in Oklahoma City and who Timothy Bay was. So let's break that down. Sure. I think just simply this chapter um, lays out a social geography of Timothy McVeigh, which I think overwhelmingly shows that he was affiliated with the white power movement and acting as a leaderless resistance operative. I think it's enormously consistent, actually. Um So I talk about his sort of um, early ties with white power ideology his later actions that show that he was operating within a frame of white power activism. Um, And then, I mean, one of the things to understand about Oklahoma city is that 
this is it, it's a it's a very significant moment, right? This is the largest mass casualty event, well, deliberate mass casualty event on American soil between Pearl Harbor and 9/11. And yet we have not figured out how to narrativize it and incorporate it into sort of a popular history. Most people still think of the Oklahoma City bombing as the work of one or a few people. Um, and certainly there's not a broad sense of a movement that was affiliated with that act. But the Alfred Murrah building, which was the target of the bombing, had been cased by white power activists within this movement since 1983. Um, McVeigh stayed with one activist who was so familiar with the Murrah building, he could draw it but from memory. Um, he had ties with um, Klan newspapers and other Klan um, paraphernalia. Um, it goes on and on like that. And I mean, he, yeah, and he was carrying an excerpt from the Turner Diaries at the time of his arrest. It, it, it just goes on and on. It's, I think, utterly persuasive. The question becomes not, was this action part of the white power movement, but how have we so not understood it that way? Um, and I think one thing that is striking about this history is that all of the events I talk about in this book were known at the time. I'm not uncovering things in this book. Um, I mean, like I said, Greensboro was on Saturday Night Live. There was footage of the Klan paramilitary training camps on the morning news shows. Most of these events were reported in major newspapers, although few newspapers had kind of the national picture. People had pretty good coverage of what was happening in their area. But we didn't ever get to the point where this all cohered into a national understanding of white power as a social movement. Part of that has to do with the trial in Fort Smith, Arkansas in 1987-88 um, for seditious conspiracy. That was a another sort of disaster trial for the federal government. Um, everyone was acquitted. There were serious questions about jury partiality. Um, including two defendants had romantic relationships with jurors. Um, and in the aftermath of that trial, there was a memo at the FBI that that said that there would be no more attempt to prosecute crimes as part of this white power movement. Only they were only going to go after one or a few people to hold accountable. So by the time we got to Oklahoma city, not only was there a policy that said, we're not going to try to show this movement, right? Um, and I mean, if anything, that was only deepened by the events at Ruby Ridge and Waco. But we had this media machine that was completely fixated on this idea of lone wolf violence. Now, lone wolf violence fits right into leaderless resistance because all you ever see is one cell at the most, usually not even a cell, usually one person. Um, so we've never gotten this corrected in the historical record. We've never sort of had this cohere as a way of understanding. Now, I, I mean, I'm going to force you to step into the present because everybody's talking about this right now. But how, how do we connect aspects of this, this white paramilitary movement, the 90s, to what seems like a normalization, at least of talking about white supremacy and white nationalism post-2016? Well, um, there's a number of things that I think are worth remembering. I, I, and I should just say, um, you know, I'm a historian. The kinds of insights that I'm able to generate from the archive and bring the war home won't be available for our present moment for another few decades. We won't have the paper records um, for a while. 
Um, but I think the history can tell us that this is a very misunderstood area of discussion. And there are some things that we we can learn from the history to be better equipped to understand the present. Um, one of those things is simply about nomenclature. I really think that calling it white nationalism can be confusing, especially to mainstream audiences, because when you say nationalism, I think what people think of is the United States as the unit of nation, right? Um, the people that I write about were really not interested in preserving or conserving the United States. What they were interested in is a transnational white racial nation that was going to be achieved through enormous violence to other people. Um, so I think white power is the better way to think of it. It really is that. It's a radical idea. It's not a conservative idea. It's revolutionary. Um, it's attempting to overthrow. It's not attempting to support. Um, and then the other thing is just that there are really, there, there are so many misconceptions about it. I, I just think that understanding the story of how it is a social movement with decades of strategic thinking behind it, decades of social network activism behind it, seeing this as something with deep, wide roots leads to a different kind of understanding than does sort of sensational, um, sensationalist one-off reports about a single event or a single perpetrator. When we see it as, when we can see the connections, um, we take them much more seriously. Well, and it's interesting to think, I mean, something like leaderless resistance, for example. I mean, these guys, they're not accidentally anticipating the internet. They're they're working in conjunction with sort of digital communication. But it it seems that much more effective with just how normal the internet has become. Yeah. Right. Certainly. And there's a there's a fundamental level of, of internet literacy that didn't exist when they started doing this. I mean, Lewis Beam had to travel around the country in 1983-84 to teach people how to use it. <laughs> um, and now he's got, you know, well, not he, because he's, but now people in this movement have acolytes like Dylan Roof, who never have to even meet anyone in real life in order to become radicalized and to take violent action. The, other, the two questions I had sort of walking away from this once I'd finished the book, one, one is about this veteran status, you know, and, and, and it continues today. There was a, um, a report the New York Times did, I think, earlier this year about an alt-right figure, now Elliot Klein, who was continuing, who, who presented himself as a veteran of the Iraq War, the second one. But, and it turns out that he had actually basically lied about his service. What is it about veteran status that seems to carry so much cachet, even as association with government has sort of become poisonous? Well, one thing that I would say is that... Um... Uh, not just for the white power movement, but for a lot of people from the 1970s on, I don't think that anti-statism is incompatible with military, like intense militarism. Um, I think people see those as different. Um, and you can think about that even insofar as um, a, a, rather than seeing the executive or the government as sort of the top of the military chain of command, I think a lot of people in the white power movement really revere the military, even as they hate the government. Um, now, is that a problem? I think only if you've taken an oath of induction that says that you've sworn to protect, you know, the United States and its enemies, foreign and domestic, right? You can't be one of those enemies and also protect it at the same time. And then my second question to this, yeah, yeah, you point out, and absolutely correctly, that you know all these conflicts before Vietnam, you generally see um, 
some sort of rise in sort of paramilitary activism. The Civil War, most conspicuously. The plan is literally born out of this. Um, but after Vietnam, it, it, it seems to, sh to shift in certain senses. Is this because the U.S. finds itself fighting different wars than it used to? Or because domestic consensus has just fundamentally changed in the United States? Or is it something else entirely? Well, first, let me be really clear about the argument that I want to make about the aftermath of war, because I don't think it's just veterans. Um, but what we do see across kind of the long arc of modern American warfare is that the aftermath of warfare corresponds to other kinds of violence in American society, and not just among veterans, but across all ages, across genders. Um, so what we see is both the use of veterans' skills to instrumentalize violence and civilians who are willing to use violent means in the aftermath of warfare. Um, that's a complicated historical phenomenon. I, it's very consistent, but I think it deserves much more scholarly attention. Now, what happens after Vietnam? I think one thing to think about is that the aftermath of warfare has become much less distinct. We're now in the middle of several ongoing engagements um, that roll into each other. Um, you can look at, at scholarship like the work of Mary Dudziak in Wartime, where she argues that actually we've been at war much more often than we have thought we have been at war um, by any definition throughout the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st. Um, the question of what happens to this phenomenon when wars are ongoing, I think, is one that people will really be grappling with in the next few decades. Yeah, I was actually just talking to Sam Moyne on this point, and he, he's considering a book on what the long-term effect, I think, of um, ongoing, ongoing low-intensity war is. Is it, is it a better system? What's the, the practical effect going to be? I think this is an area rich with potential scholarship. Mm -hmm, I agree. Um, well, this just about rounds out our hour together, but I wanted to ask before you go, what are you thinking of working on next? What a good question that is. <laughs> you know, it's always interesting at the beginning of a new project because um, you know exactly how much distance there is from where you are uh, to where you'd like to be. Um, but I've, I'm just back from the archive. I think I have something on violence in the 1990s. It has to do with mass violence and ideas of the future. And that might be kind of as far as I can go with it right now. <laughs> but check back, check back. <laughs> well, be sure to. You, you have a, a knack for certainly picking topics that are very relevant in the moment. Everybody's going to be wanting to pick your brain about this, I think. Oh, so be prepared for that. <laughs> you know, that's as much an accident of timing as anything. I, I Bring the War Home used to have a long section in it about why it was important to study the fringe because um, it was not evident when I began this project why it was important to study the fringe, and now it has become so. So <laughs> these things happen as you're writing. <laughs> uh, thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.